This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Welcome to Pantsuit Politics, where we try to take a different approach to the news. There's just a lot going on right now. Tonight, President Biden will give his State of the Union address. We'll process that together on Friday's episode. As we're recording, we're learning about the devastating earthquakes that have caused many deaths and so much suffering in Turkey and Syria, and our hearts are with everyone who is affected. We'll continue to monitor the consequences of those earthquakes. Today, we are going to talk about the Chinese surveillance balloon that was spotted in Montana and destroyed off the coast of Myrtle Beach, as one commenter on the internet observed, the most Myrtle Beach thing ever. Ha <laughs> ha! And then with Super Bowl Sunday coming up, we asked Ken Vogel of the New York Times to talk with us about his reporting on sports betting. Even if you don't care at all about gambling on sports, I think this conversation reveals so much about how our government works and about where the courts and Congress and state legislators and lobbyists come in. So we hope that you find it as fascinating as we did. And then after we talk with Ken, we will share, as we always do, what's on our mind outside of politics. And today that is finding some rest over the weekend somewhere in a kind of a structured way. I do want to put a public service announcement out there around our conversation around sports betting. You guys know I don't like sports. Don't get upset about it. You already know that about me. We've already had all the email exchanges where you explain to me how wrong I am about sports. It's just a quirk of my personality. So we're just going to lean in at this point and accept that Sarah doesn't like sports or think it's important in American culture. And that's okay. So I just wanted to put that out. Because, of course, that surfaces in a conversation about sports betting. And that's a good PSA because this is a conversation where we have really different perspectives. I both enjoy sports and have no problem with sports gambling. And you do not like sports and think sports gambling is terrible. So you'll hear some of that in our discussion with Ken. He handles it very well. (laughs) (laughs) Our week, like the news, is very packed. As you listen to this episode, we are in Maryville College in Tennessee, where we will be speaking tonight. When we return on Wednesday, we'll be hosting a live book club event to wrap up our reading of the January 6th report. You can find details about how to join our premium community in that event in our show notes. We're going to be taking questions. It's going to be so much fun. And we're working on a special newsletter this Friday that will include links to everything that's helping us get through the winter, our winter survival guide. Our newsletter is the best place to keep up with everything we're making and doing in the world. And you can sign up on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, to get all of that information delivered to your inbox on Fridays. Next up, let's talk about the balloon. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. 
The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. feel like I should say, where were you when you found out about the balloon, Sarah? Listen, the balloon flew over Paducah. Did you know this? Well, I was going to ask you because I saw the map and I thought Uh that looks like Sarah might have seen the balloon from her house. I didn't see it personally, but very many people in Paducah saw it. Also, friendly reminder, Paducah is the location of a former gaseous diffusion plant. So between Montana and Paducah, this narrative that it was a weather balloon, friends, friends. No. I said on the news brief, it made me feel simultaneously special and creeped out. My whole balloon posture is to try to be humble and just to realize how many things we don't know. We just, there's so much that we don't know. And I was really frustrated reading commentary from members of Congress who are scheduled to be briefed but haven't been briefed yet on their analysis of the situation because I feel like there is just a lot that we don't know. So we are learning some things. We are learning that this is not the first balloon, that we have seen the balloon during the Trump administration. Maybe administration officials at that time did not know about it. It sounds like it was discovered later, like we put the pieces together later. But we've seen the balloon before. It's not the first balloon that has sailed through the country during the Biden administration. We've had Chinese balloons near Texas, Florida, Hawaii, and Guam. A second balloon last week was observed over South America also believed to be a Chinese surveillance balloon. The Chinese say, no, that one is just to observe weather and do research, too. And everyone says, lies. That's not what's happening at all. These balloons have been around since the 1800s. They were very common during World War I and II. And everybody's like, why would we use balloons now that we have satellites? Because these balloons can hover at about the same height as commercial airlines fly, so they're able to take some clearer images than satellites, and they might also be able to gather electronic signals and intercept communications. I do feel like balloon doesn't quite do the size of this thing justice. (laughs) It's the size of three school buses. And so when members of the Republican Party were like, just shoot it down. What's the big deal? Well, if you shoot three school buses down from the sky, people could get hurt. And then we have a real international incident on our hands. Also, the pictures of the people with their guns outside ready to shoot the balloon What if it's a trap? What if they are counting on someone shooting the balloon and then something terrible happens? Like, let's have some 
again, posture of humility, some imagination that makes us capable of understanding that it's not quite as simple as, oh, Chinese balloon in the sky, someone should pop it. Mm-hmm. This is a very sensitive unusual situation in terms of the public being aware of surveillance that's happening. And that's the other thing I think we have to remember. Surveillance is happening all the time. time. All the time. Well, and the instinct to shoot it down is a natural one. That was President Biden's initial (laughs) response when they told him, shoot it down. And they're like, well, somebody might get hurt. He goes, okay, well, then let's wait till it's over water. And that's what they did. On Saturday, a single air to missile fired by an F-22 fighter jet took the balloon down off the coast of South Carolina. And so now... The Navy and the Coast Guard are like, get all the balloon, get all the balloon pieces. We got to get the balloon pieces and figure out what it was doing, where it was going. The Chinese are like, you guys sure overreacted to our weather balloon. And everybody's like, we don't believe it was a weather balloon, guys. Officials are saying preliminarily, they don't think that it added that much to Chinese intelligence capabilities. So like, there's all this conversation about we should have gotten it before it was able to float over the United States. And I think it was really creepy and messed with us. But if they don't think it collected that much more, then when you're factoring that cost-benefit analysis, what happens if we shoot down something this size? What is in it? What if we've incorrectly assessed what's going on here? It makes sense to me that they let it get off the coast of South Carolina. But like more than anything, it doesn't matter if it makes sense to me. This is just one of those things where I feel like as a public, we have to take a breath and say, weird thing that we don't quite understand. Hopefully we can trust our government to handle it appropriately. Well, there was really good analysis in the New York Times by David Sanger that everyone was linking to this morning as we're recording on Monday, which is, you're exactly right. That's why you're reading so much about the history of this is because that's all the media has. (laughs) It's like, let's look back at some other incidences with balloons and with miscommunication. And I thought that was the most interesting part of this analysis, which is we had two fighter jets. I think they shot each other down, an American one and a Chinese one, several years ago during the Bush presidency, and they couldn't get anybody from China on the phone. And everybody was like, well, that's a problem. Let's not Mm -hmm. do that again. But it seemed like there wasn't a lot of communication between our government and the Chinese government. And I think this analysis is right, that this was an unforced error from the Chinese government that really wanted Secretary Blinken to show up on that trip he was making to Beijing that is now canceled indefinitely because this was obviously a violation of our sovereignty, which is something that China crows about constantly. So this seems like one more big mistake as this new era of Xi's leadership continues from, you know, like the removing the guy at the conference and ending the lockdowns in a way that really creates a crisis. It's just one thing after the other after the other. So here in the United States, where we have had some very unserious reactions from elected officials about this, we do have a process for members of Congress to get good information. The Gang of Eight will be briefed this week. Those are the senior members of the intelligence committees in the House and the Senate, plus the top Republicans. So Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, Hakeem Jeffries, and then the four top senators on the intel committees. They'll be briefed this week. All men. All men. Which is a little disappointing. I think that's disappointing, too. I had the same reaction when I was checking out who gets that briefing this morning. It's Mike Turner, Jim Hines, Mark Warner, and Marco Rubio, plus the four leaders I mentioned. And then the full Senate was already scheduled to have a classified briefing on China on February 15th. And now, of course, the balloon will be part of that conversation. And... We will have a zillion committee hearings about it. John Tester of Montana has said he's very interested in knowing what was going on with the balloon. I bet he is. But I thought his remarks were exactly the right ones. 
I want to know what happened. I will get to the bottom of it, but not making any preliminary judgments. It was his state that this first, you mm-hmm. know, became a thing about, and he was very measured about it. Because John Tester's the best. That's why. I think so, too. And then, of course, House Republicans are considering passing a resolution criticizing their response on Tuesday, which, if you're looking at a calendar, Tuesday is before the full Senate is briefed on the issue, but they already have decided that President Biden should have shot the balloon down much earlier. They already know enough. Good for Mm -hmm. them. For me, I think the entire balloon incident is just a really important reminder and opportunity to continue to evaluate and learn as much as we can about China, what is going on there now, what our approach to this country is. We have clearly shifted our diplomatic approach to China. During the Obama administration and previous administrations, it was, you know, we're going to have open channels of communication. We are at a partnership. We are in an alliance. And then that came under some pretty harsh criticism, beginning with President Trump. But it's not like President Biden took a hard turn from Trump's approach to China. He didn't. And there seems to be, you know, bipartisan agreement that we need to be tougher on China. I'm not sure how much I agree with that. I do think the sort of old neoliberal approach to China is not great and showed several weaknesses. And I think this situation we found ourselves in where we have two superpower players in the global economy and an international foreign policy based so heavily on sovereignty is just rife with tension that we have not figured out how to handle in the best of circumstances, but particularly when it comes to China. Well, I remember talking early in the Biden administration about their stated policy on China, which was to be, you know, competitors where we have to be and friends where we can be and figuring out where are the spaces where we must cooperate with one another globally, like on climate change And where are spaces in which our hands are forced and we have to be adversaries? I was interested in seeing Pete Buttigieg's response. He was asked over the weekend on one of the Sunday shows if we're in a new Cold War with China. And I really wanted to hear his answer to that question. He kind of pivoted to talking about the administration's accomplishments, that competition with China is part of why we've done the infrastructure package on a bipartisan basis and why we've done the CHIPS Act. And I'm not mad about that. I think that's great. It was a fine answer, but it didn't really get to the essential question. What is our relationship with China now? I have some concern that the bipartisan push to be tough on China will have really negative consequences over the long haul. For example, I I think a lot of what House Republicans are saying about energy policy is actually pretty pragmatic, and I find a lot of space for agreement with it. But I did not agree with the passage of a law that restricted our ability to ever give fuel from our strategic reserve to China. Because I think that carving out those spaces, it acts like the board is set and fixed in a way that it just can't be in a in a world as interconnected as ours is, especially when so much of our economy is dependent on shipments from China. So I don't know where this goes next, but I do worry that the political element of having this creepy, gigantic balloon floating over our country is going to harden people's attitudes toward China in a way that could manifest in hate crimes and, you know, some some really unproductive behavior. Yeah, I think the knee-jerk reaction to, like, they're spying on us. Well, of course they're spying on us, you guys. You're all using TikTok. It doesn't seem to bother you. Like, they're spying on us, and we are spying on them. 
The, like, mutual spying is not that upsetting to me. I understand why it feels creepy, but it's like, that's just because you're realizing something that probably deep down you knew all the time, which is just we live in a surveillance state, all of us everywhere. And so that to me is not so upsetting, but I understand why it upsets other people. And then I understand how that can set off sort of a domino effect that really restricts our options and our perspective on our relationship with China. I do think ultimately cooler heads will prevail. And I feel myself being a little skeptical of the arguments I hear. You know, Ezra Klein had a former Biden official, State Department official on talking about this. And just that, like, are we restricting innovation? You know, things aren't limited. And and arguing just what you did, like, we're thinking things are set in stone and they're not. And it's like, I, I see that and I get it and I agree to a certain extent. And I can't quite name the sense of, It's not really competition. It's just I think that there's this desperate attempt to have it both ways, to, like, be a superpower in the world with China and also be a democratic leader, like a leader of democracy. And it's just I struggle as an Enneagram one that often defaults to black and white to see how both things can be true. Um, That's why I would be a terrible diplomat, and I acknowledge that. And especially in a moment like this where the spying comes into, you know, such sharp effect and the fact that there is a lot of competition and there is just some fundamental disagreements about how the world should be ordered between our two countries, I think is is more difficult than we like to acknowledge. And I think all of that puts into perspective why it's fine for Americans to do what we do and make jokes and make memes and be fascinated by the balloon. It is a fascinating thing. And also, we need our elected officials to say to us, friends, there are a lot of competing interests here, and there are a lot of things to think about, not all of them existing just between the United States and China, thinking about China's support for Russia and Ukraine, thinking about Taiwan, thinking about the South China Sea. There are so many factors here. Just, like, let us handle the balloon. We'll talk to you about it as much as we can (laughs) Mm -hmm. and know that we don't need to be sitting on our porch with guns thinking this is a simple problem that we could solve easily. We're going to take a hard turn now from international relations to arguably the Super Bowl, but really, I think, a conversation about how the sausage gets made in American legislation. We're going to be joined for this discussion of sports betting by Kenneth Vogel who is based in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. He covers the confluence of money, politics, and influence. In November, Ken and several colleagues published stories on the fastest expansion of gambling in U.S. history. And with the Super Bowl right around the corner, we wanted to talk with Ken about that. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsea stories.com slash pantsuit. 
dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Thank you so much for being here, Ken. I wonder if we can start with the pre-2018 landscape because we had this National Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act that said that states could not authorize gambling programs. And then in 2018, the Supreme Court overturns that law, says it violates dual sovereignty. And suddenly, like, the game is on, and we get in five years to... Literally. 31 states Uh. and D.C. legalizing sports gambling. So can you tell us kind of what happened immediately after that Supreme Court opinion and and where, where this surge came from? Yeah. And if I can even back up to before the decision, the the basis for the law, um, PAPSA is the abbreviation for it, is uh, that that uh, sports were, you know, at risk of being corrupted by gambling and that this was a move that was taken to prevent that corruption. And so it's quite interesting that when you fast forward to 2018, when the Supreme Court rules that this law was unconstitutional, that suddenly the leagues are you know, initially they sort of tiptoe into it. They say, well, we're not switching our stance and saying that we're for 
uh, gambling on our sports. You know, but if you are going to, you, the states, are going to legalize gambling, like here's the things that we would like you to do uh, to do it in a way that would minimize the chance for corruption. And shockingly, one of the things that they wanted was money uh, in exchange <laughs> for gambling on their games. And, you know, there is, I think, a valid or at least understandable argument like they would say, it's our product. We are the ones who put on these games. If there's going to be money made betting on these games, then we should get a cut of it. And eventually, not it didn't take long for that stance to shift from like, well, if you do legalize it, we'd like you to do these things to please legalize it and mm. also do these things. And they had really laid the groundwork. They, both the, the leagues and the betting companies, the companies that were sort of well positioned to cash in on this, in the years before the decision, the Supreme Court decision, by pushing fantasy sports, daily fantasy sports offerings, which kind of showed the template like that you could have something involving money uh, being placed on sports. They objected to the idea that this is actually gambling and said it's not wagering. It's a game of skill. There were legal arguments about that. But either way, there were lawmakers and companies and, um, you know, customers who became comfortable with this idea of sports having like a monetary element for the fans where they can make money based on the results of what happens in these games. So the groundwork was laid in a couple ways for there to be this surge of sports betting legalization across the country after that decision. You know, I don't make it my job to defend the Supreme Court decision because I do think it opened up this, you know, tsunami of terrible outcomes. But it's flimsy. It's flimsy to look at an industry, an industry, sports industry, and say money will corrupt it, you guys. Like, it's just that's a flimsy argument to base everything on. Like, if money's going to corrupt, well, there's already plenty money, plenty, plenty of money sloshing around corrupting all kinds of decisions from like the NFL and CTE to, you know, the treatment of the players, like all of that. So I just I get that that was flimsy. I wish there was had was and had been a better argument, which I think you sort of put forth about why this is a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, there certainly are concerns about about gambling addiction. And that is that is remains a, a, a serious concern and one that the leagues and the teams and the and the sports betting companies are very sensitive to because they've seen where there has been a rush to legalize in other countries uh, that there has been a backlash because of a surge in bankruptcies and gambling addiction and underage gambling. And so, you know, they're acutely aware of this and they're trying to uh, show that they can self-regulate, that they can do the things uh, to always prevent. So well. Right. I think it's interesting how the court dealt with the addiction issue. I read the opinion this morning as I was preparing for this conversation, and it feels like such an eerie precursor to the Dobbs decision because Alito wrote the majority opinion. And he starts very much like he starts Dobbs, like Americans are of different minds about this. People of good faith disagree. And that's why it's a policy consideration that we should leave to the states. So talk to us about the state process because the lobbying effort around state legislators, I thought, was such a fascinating aspect of your reporting. Did it work out like you said? Did they do it so responsibly and tax so much tax revenue that they then dedicated to addiction outreach? I feel like that's definitely what happened, right? Can you sense my sarcasm? <laughs> uh, yeah. So 
one one of the main sort of points of contention it was the 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 taxation and the what the taxes would be used for and the gambling industry argued and this is by the way one of the main arguments of the gambling industry not of the sports teams or the leagues but this idea that like this is already happening it's happening illegally either through bookies you know your at the your corner bar or online you know offshore companies that were offering um, gambling, even though it wasn't legalized in, in the U.S., so this is happening illegally. And I'm like, you know, I, I, I don't dispute that, but there are disputes about the extent to which there was illegal gambling and the, you know, the the way that the gambling industry used the specter of illegal gambling to try to push state lawmakers to legalize it. Um, you know, we found that there was a figure cited. Uh, regularly, starting actually, interestingly, with this uh, National Gambling Impact Study Commission, a congressionally uh, mandated body that studied gambling and addiction risk and all facets of gambling in the 90s. And from that, there was this figure thrown out of like up to between 80 and $380 billion a year in illegal gambling. And we tried to forensically go back and that and by the way, that figure then was thrown out regularly in the debates, so, you know, in these state legislatures after the 2018 Supreme Court decision. So we're like, well, that's an interesting figure. It was very convincing. I mean, it was thrown out by the lawmakers, the lobbyists, all the advocates for legalizing. And we went back and tried to reconstruct where did that figure come from? And it appears to have basically been pulled from the ether. I mean, it was very flimsy. And subsequently, the gambling industry has gone back and they've done other studies that tried to put, apply a more rigorous methodology to it. But certainly that was one of the ways that lobbyists laid the groundwork to push this through. Another way was to try to pit these states against each other and say like, well, I don't know, you, you might not legalize this year, but your neighboring state, oh. they're sure going to push it through. And if you don't, all your residents are just going to go, you know, over the over the border and play their best. But like the big point, which is why they, you raised like how much the states can benefit from this. And so there was this balance that basically the state lawmakers and the lobbyists were debating that like, well, you could tax it at like, you know, some some high rate and collect a lot more money for all these various programs, whether it be education or, or gambling, uh, you know, gambling addiction prevention treatment detection. Uh, but if you have a very high tax rate, then people are not going to participate and they're going to, you know, because the winnings will be lower and uh, you know, the, the, the individual um, betters winnings would be lower if it was like taxed at a high rate. And that's actually not. Also, um, doesn't even make sense with the other argument they're making that you'll be more invested in the game. They're like right. completely in disagreement with each other. And look, yeah. you know, you are a very professional journalist. So I'm going to say the point that I don't think you would say because you're a professional journalist. But as I was reading it, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is the problem. And this is the problem with Dobbs and Alito and this new, you know, Ezra Klein did a whole show on it. Like, well, the policy is going to come from the state houses. They're bozos. Let me say that as nicely as I can. They're bozos. These are part time legislators, often with not competitive districts. And the ones that are there, like trying to do their best, are holding it all together with duct tape. Like these are, they're not fully staffed. They're not even there most of the time. They have other jobs. And so asking them to do the heavy lift of policy work for like the whole country 
is a disaster. Like, it's just a disaster when they don't have, look, I mean, it's not a brain trust at Congress all the time, but like, they have a lot more staffing support just on the most basic level, and at least they're there full time. Like, in Kentucky, they're there like two months a year, and they have almost none of them have staff. And you're asking them to set policy around difficult issues like sports betting? Well, no wonder we end up in these debacles. Yeah, you're right that I, I wouldn't say the bozo. Uh, <laughs> the bozo I know. I was like, he's a professional. He just won't say, you guys, they're bozos. Right. But what I I'll will say, say I mean, I, I some of those dynamics I have seen for myself. I covered mm-hmm. you know, state government and politics for years before I uh, you know moved to Washington and, and started covering national politics. And, you know, there are there are like well recognized among lobbyists and industries ways in which you know, having an issue before a state legislature is preferable to having it before Congress. Yep. You know, it costs less to influence state elections. It, you know, you can get you can go directly to the ballot if you can't get your way in the legislature through a referendum, you know, or uh, uh, an initiative. And to your point, like the, these these advocacy campaigns sometimes are much more effective at the state level because of the lack of staffing, the, the sort of um, you know part time nature of many state legislatures, um, and the ability to leverage um, you know political to leverage pu- like public sentiment to achieve a result is is just easier, costs less, the ads are less expensive, et cetera. And so you saw from, you know, going back to the the pre-PAPS, the pre-Supreme Court decision period, where the gambling companies were building these relationships and this customer base with uh, with people in all these states. They were bringing guns to a knife fight. That's what they were doing. Right. Through through daily fantasy sports. And and then they wielded that. They actually were like messaging people on their phones like so and so legislature, you know, is uh, is opposed to sports betting or is opposed to daily fantasy. Like call them and tell them. why. Oh. They and so it's like you're really getting a lot of bang for your buck there. Both because this is this is you're using your customer base, which is good for you to develop and wielding it as like a lobbying weapon. And you're also able to, um, you know, to make these arguments and and uh, potentially direct, you know, to legislators or potentially directly to, um, you know, to citizens, to voters in a way that is more cost effective than doing it in Congress. And so the point about the, the taxation they were quite successful in, in using that argument about how uh, if you if you set the tax rate too high, you're going to discard the business is not going to be successful. The companies aren't going to want to do business here and people aren't going to bet as much. And that turned out to be pretty false. As if like high tax states and cities just opt out of sports teams because the taxes are so high. What would even be the point to have a sports yeah. team in New York City? Give me a break. Right. But New York did set the rate very high. They're at like 51 percent and they are making a ton of money off of it. And it's true, like the the gambling companies are still complaining about it and they're trying to go back and retroactively open up the legislation and lower the tax rate or try to find some way uh, to compromise on that. And New York, the the New York lawmakers are like, oh, you know, you're people are betting. You want it in. You got to pay. Right. So. um, So, yeah, I mean, you're you're right about the the, it being sort of the analogy that we use in talking about this is like. When these when these gambling companies and the the sports leagues and the sports teams tried to push to legalize at the state level, it was like a hot knife through butter. Like there just wasn't that much resistance. And even states now that that still don't have it, it's mostly perceived as a question of when, not if, yeah. they will legalize. 
That's where we are in Kentucky. We're having this argument right now. And I live in a place where that other state component is very compelling. You can you can gamble 15 minutes this direction in Indiana, 15 minutes this direction in Ohio. Why can't we do sports betting here in Kentucky? And so there is a feeling of of when, not if. But I think that your reporting so shows that like, yes, the issue for the populace might be, do we want this as a general matter? The issue for the legislators is how will this happen and under what circumstances? And I would love as we get into those details for you to talk about this issue of taxation around promotions and how states basically have become partners in attracting new gamblers, because I think this is where we have to be able to rely on our representatives to do the digging that we won't do as citizens. And they have failed around this issue, I think. And I want to tack on to that question. What makes me want to just spontaneously combust is it's not like all these states didn't do lottos, didn't see that they didn't produce this tsunami of tax revenue that was just going to fund everything for all time. You know who makes money in the lottos? The people who print them. That's who makes all the money. Like, it's just, it's so frustrating to me. Like, we didn't have an example to look at and go, hmm, how will this turn out? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point on the sort of track record of gambling, state-sanctioned gambling in, in a lot of these states that has not produced, has Mm-mm. historically not lived up to the billing of, uh, I mean, it's not to say that it hasn't been, you know, lotteries in particular, like have produced a lot of money for states, but it's all, there's always like the argument on the front end about all the great things that it's going to fund. And it's often, often doesn't live up to the billing. And, um, you know, to best point about the promotions, that is one of the ways that, um, the, that they, that they got like, that the gambling companies and got like sweetheart deals, uh, with these states, they've said, like, in order for us to, we're now in business together. If we're if we're going to do this, we, the gambling companies, are in business with you, the state, the state governments, and so it is in your interest, the states, for us to be successful. Because the more the more gambling that we're able to process, the more money you're going to make for whatever the programs that you deem to be worthy of receiving the the state portion of that revenue. And so they came in on the front end, these gambling companies, and said, well, in order for us to attract the gamblers to what is a new industry, we are going to need to offer these promotions. This is what you see anytime you turn on any, you know, sports talk radio or turn on the TV, you know, during sports or really any any programming. You're going to see these ads about like free bets or risk-free bets or trials. And they say like, we'll give you, you know, if you place uh, open an account with DraftKings, we'll give you like a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, three hundred dollars in free bets. And they uh, they they got in most in a lot of cases in most cases they got the states to allow them to deduct from the tax rates those free bets <laughs> they're like process they're marketing it. can I deduct my advertising that'd be great thanks guys yeah I mean that's that's basically what it is so that you know has really eaten into the shares of the like the tax revenue that these states could reap in a lot of cases because the companies are deducting so much off of the top of what the sort of portion that would be taxable uh, of gambling, uh, the 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 gambling, the handle, they call it. Um, so that that has been another thing that has diminished the profitability for the states. Well, and listen, you there was a, a companion piece to this about the universities. And when I got to the port where the universities were emailing the student body with those 
Promotion, if I had my child at a university and was paying tuition and they got an email with a free promotion for gambling, I would go full carry nation, full carry nation with the battle axe. Like, are you even kidding me right now? At least some of those cases after our stories ran, after that story that you mentioned ran, there was, uh, I mean, it was not, first of all, it was not something that was widely known necessarily, even in those states. I bet when people found out, they were mad. Yeah, and there was a revisiting of, of it. And there have been a few things that have, uh, in our series, uh, that prompted some government attention, shall we say. So Massachusetts which was in the process of legalizing uh, when we uh, when the stories ran. Um, it was after our stories ran, including a, an extensive story about Barstool Sports and its uh, founder, this guy Dave Portnoy, having himself racked up a bunch of gambling debt that led to a bankruptcy early in his mm. uh, life. They were rather aggressive, the Massachusetts gambling regulators, in their hearing with this Barstool Sports to decide whether to license it. They ultimately decide to license it, but uh, but are doing some kind of investigation of Barstool Sports and its marketing practices. Well, that's good. Yeah, I'm not opposed to sports betting in concept. It is these details where I start to get really upset at how carelessly it was done, that even states, as you reported, that passed some restrictions on how you advertise to whom you advertise, developed processes for people to say, I have a problem, don't let me bet here. They didn't fund the enforcement efforts and the the efforts to keep this gambling in check. And that's what I find really disturbing. Yeah, and we actually found instances where there's states that did have one of those, uh, we call them like self-exclusion lists. So in other words, they allow for they wrote into the law that uh, if someone, you know, is uh, has has a problem or thinks they will have a problem gambling, they can go to the state. Unfortunately, it's it, it's not off, not always the state. Sometimes they have to go to the gambling companies and they have to go to each individual gambling company in some states and say, hey, I got this problem. I want to be on the blacklist. Uh, the self-exclusion list. And in in we found a number of examples where, in fact, the gambling companies had let people who were on the self-exclusion list continue to bet. Or we heard examples of people who put themselves in cooling off periods, uh, they call it, is something short of the self-exclusion list where you say, well, I'll take a, a two-week break where I am not going to be able to gamble. And as soon as that two-week period ended, they were targeted by oh. inducements to you know promotions by the gambling companies to come back. Hey, we want you back sort of thing. So um, you know there are rules and there are laws, but uh, there's a lot of self-regulation. And uh, even in cases where there are laws that are enforced by the state, we find these types of violations where it doesn't appear as if, you know, and some of it may be, you know, the, the gambling companies say, well, if that was a third party processor's error. Um, but it just it all adds up to an industry um, that is not necessarily as thoroughly regulated as they would have led the lawmakers who um, legalized it to believe. I am opposed to sports betting. I guess I do in technically sports bet because I bet on the Kentucky Derby every year, but that's the extent of it. And I, it, it's not even that I'm opposed to it. I just feel like there's this undercurrent that happens in sports where we tell ourselves it's special and something better is happening when we play sports or watch sports or engage in sports, even professional sports. And so the idea of government regulation is like, ooh, but this is this is where we're our best selves, even though we all have to see one million examples where that is, in fact, not true. It's just an industry just like anything 
else. And it's going to be motivated by profit, no matter how teary we get during the Super Bowl ads. Like, and it just feels like that in, that sort of infected the reasoning and infected the thinking. And it happens so often with sports, I think, where we're telling ourselves something really special and human and, ap- and you know, sort of set apart from the rest of our everyday lives is happening here. When I just don't think that's true. And I wish we were honest about it. And it feels like this, when you watch what rolled out across the state legislators with this sports betting is just one more example of that. I mean, it's such a huge part of American culture and, and mm-hmm. civic identity. I mean, I'm I'm an Eagles fan. I know. I see but, your uh, I see your football. I can see it behind you. Uh, you know, you see, like, I mean, I'm in Washington D.C., but I'm like watching on social media. Uh, the like just spontaneous like outpouring of unity and enthusiasm when the Eagles made the Super Bowl, like just people flooding into the streets. It's like so important. And now this like important part of our like national cultural and, you know, individual like municipal civic identity is so wrapped up in gambling. It's really inescapable for like the kids who are playing it early on. And, you know, you have like Again, like they, there are restrictions that are put in place that are intended to limit the uh, reach of the marketing to kids because the kids are impressionable. You don't want them to think of like sports as inseparable from gambling. You want them to think of sports as like a pursuit that they could go and get exercise and develop like lifelong healthy habits and and bonds with teenagers. Because our kids' sports environment is also so healthy. <laughs> right. Well, that's another, <laughs> that's another issue. Yeah. But but you know it's 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 like impossible now. So so let's say you have like. Well, if it's a game that's on during a certain time, like there shouldn't be, you know, during when kids would be watching, there should be less gambling as, but it's like right there on the, you know, on the wall of Fenway Park, drafting yeah. or wherever, you know. So, um, you know, and it's in the, like in the broadcast now where like ESPN, if you watch a basketball game on ESPN, they will do like it, this, this, the, um, the game crew who announces the game from the arena will do these like in-game tosses to the studio crew and they'll do like a promo. They'll be like, who is going to score the next basket? Is it going to be the Denver Nuggets or the Philadelphia 76ers? So it's wow. like a kid watching that is not gonna is not gonna come away with the mm-hmm. impression that like the the gambling is something that's like different and prohibited. You know that you have to be older. They're gonna just gonna see it normalized. As part of the game. So normalized, yeah. I was interested in the piece on university participation in these promotions to see that an athletic director testified that. It's one thing for a student athlete to be harassed on social media after a game because fans are hardcore. And I am, you know, familiar with that as a Kentucky basketball fan. But it's another thing when people lose a significant amount of money based on their performance. And I just wonder if that's anything that you've seen in kind of follow up to these pieces. Like how how has it shifted the culture as these laws have become so commonplace, 30, you know, 31 states? Well, and to add on to that, now we have the NCAA regulations changing as far as sponsorship. So it's like all of this is converging in the university environment at the same time in a very intense way for student athletes and the students themselves. Yeah, and there, there are a few areas of concern. Um, one is like the possibility that someone might be enticed to throw a game or to somehow mm. influence the result of the game. Because they're so young, they can't process all the actions and consequences for that. They're like 18, 19, 20 years old. A and B, as you said, uh, Sarah, you see where there are other, there are some athletes who are that old who are getting these NIL deals who are making a lot of money. But there are plenty of the, the, there are many, many more athletes who are not getting those. 
So with those athletes then, and, you know, we haven't, I mean, it's, it's tough to know because, because like it, it, you know, who knows what's happening at some like small, you know, sport, uh, small college, you know, sports program. Uh, There haven't been any, um, any instances that we've seen thus far since the legalization of like a big point shaving scandal or something like that, that has really like shaken the sort of confidence in this sports betting regime. Um, the other, the other thing that we've seen sporadically is like, what happens if a gambler loses a bunch of money? Would they like take it out on a player or seek to take it out on a player? And we have seen like a few examples of threats made against players from people who say that they've lost money. But again, thus far, thankfully, nothing that has risen to the level of like, uh, where, where there's like actual, you know, retribution or attempted retribution uh, against a player. Um, but I mean, you know, it's, 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 you see like after the, that horrible DeMar Hamlin injury, um, the Bills player was injured during the game against the Bengals. Mm-hmm. People are on, people are like on social media talking about like how it's going to affect their like bets that they placed oh, on the Jesus. game, you know? And it's like, wow, that really should be a, much lower consideration than the, the, the health of this guy, but, uh, it is, it is just now inseparably a part of, of the games. Well, we know it will be inseparably part of the Super Bowl coming up and are so glad that you were here to talk with us about it and good luck to the Eagles. I know you're a big fan and thank you for all of this reporting. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. I enjoyed the conversation and go birds. (laughs) Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15.
there's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Thank you so much to Ken Vogel for his reporting and for spending some time discussing it with us. Sarah, when we were talking about what to discuss outside of politics today, we hit on something that we have talked about so many times off the microphone that we couldn't believe we haven't talked about it here on the show yet. And that is our observance of Sabbath or just generally what you're doing with your Sundays to try to rest. Well, in the new year, my family and I really prioritize Sabbath. Now, we are defining Sabbath as Saturday. <laughs> we are celebrating uh, the Jewish Sabbath, really, because it starts on sundown on Friday and ends on sundown on Saturday. Because the religious service on Sunday, like we do go to church on Sunday, and that has like this very active energy all its own. Griffin has to be there at 845 in the morning. He stays till after my parents take a child after lunch. We have family dinner. And so it's just there's not a lot of quiet rest, and that's what's really appealing to me. I've started reading The Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he talks about the architecture of time. We so often attribute sacredness to a place, and that's definitely what happens when we go to church on Sunday, but that there is a sacredness of time and how you choose to spend that time. And, you know, as we talked about on the last show, like, I can feel it speeding up this time together as a family of five. You know, Griffin's going to be in high school next year, and I can feel that pressure to be on screens and to to consume, to, like, participate in the outside world all the time from our phones. And I really wanted to prioritize rest. And we've done it a little bit, but we really, really tried to lean in in the new year. And so we light a candle. We have dinner together on Friday night. We either play a game or watch a movie or have reading time. And then really on Saturday, we try to do something together as a family and just rest together. I mean, we went bowling. It wasn't like we're not like, you know, at home not leaving or anything. But it's been both incredibly rewarding and incredibly difficult all at the same time. What about you? What has been your sort of new focus on the Sabbath? Well, I should say that I have not been as intentional about this as I hope to be in the new year because our new year hasn't been what I expected it to be. And that's just life and and happens and it's fine. I am really looking for Sundays to be a day when I feel rested. We go to church in the morning, but our church service is at nine. It's done by 10 o'clock. And so I have the day. We have begun a practice of having Sunday dinner with friends of ours, and we just rotate houses, and that's been really lovely, and it's something that I look forward to all week. 
and it takes the pressure off that meal. Even if we're hosting it, it feels like something fun and special instead of like, Mm -hmm. let me figure out, you know, what we're going to eat tonight. I have been trying to think for myself about how can I spend time with each of my daughters where we're doing something that isn't dominated by screens. I don't really mind watching a movie together. I think that that's fine because it generates a lot of conversation. And, you know, we make popcorn before. We talk about why we're watching this. We talk about it afterward. But I've been coloring quite a bit with Ellen on the weekends, and I'm really enjoying that. And it's something I want to lean into a lot more. It's it's nice to color. I forget Mm -hmm. how lovely it is to just sit around and color. So this is on my mind a lot, and my relationship with my phone continues to be on my mind, and I find myself just leaving my phone at a distance more and more, taking the Apple Watch off, trying to not be beholden to notifications on the weekend, and just recognize that it's it's okay for me to not have hard rules around this. But the intention of just paying more attention and slowing down and, and taking a beat is really vital. I agree with you. I can feel that our days are numbered when we have this time all together in one space. And I I do want to feel that. Well, and our days are numbered, period. In general. That's right. And, you know, I said it's been difficult. We have had so many tears. I don't want to do that. I don't want to watch that movie. I cried one Sunday because I said this feels like all of the pressure is on me to sort of organize our days and find things for us to do together, not to mention just the Chinese water torture of, can I turn it, can I have screens back? Is text Shabbat over? Is text Shabbat over? Is text Shabbat over? And so it is hard. Like, it is kind of work. We talked about Ezra Klein had a conversation about Sabbath on his podcast, and they talked about, like, it's, it is work. It is effort. There is effort here. So if the idea is rest, pure rest. This isn't what it is because pure rest is in a way like all of us going to our corners and getting on our screens and just completely, you know, numbing out (laughs) in a way, right? And we do that sometimes on Sunday, but like on Saturday, I'm really trying to be very conscientious and intentional. I'm trying hard not to keep things out of Friday night just so we have Friday nights together. We've had family dinner with my parents and my grandmother since we moved back to Paducah. Spawned by The Sopranos, because I watched Carmela Soprano host that Sunday dinner for years on that show. And I said, when I go back to Paducah, we're doing that. I don't cook it like Carmela, my husband does. But it does. It, that Sunday night dinner, having some structure on that is, like, really, really nice. There is rest in structure. I think that's one thing I've learned. Like, you think you just want an empty calendar. And in a lot of ways, you do. But in the in paradoxically, also a little bit of something to do together and just have kind of a this weekend we worked on a connects Eiffel Tower which was very intense and hard but just like having something to do together I think is so important and we're really we're I think we're like finding our groove here and I don't know what will happen as like you know it's easy to find the space in the winter I don't know what will happen in the summer as the sunsets get later and later and later but I'm really enjoying it right now. Yeah, it's nice to have some structure, even if it's just like there's a puzzle on the table. Right. And so you have a minute and you can say, hey, should we go work on our puzzle? We've been, yep. we've been doing some of that. And we love that we have regular card games that we play. Chad and I just started playing Cribbage. Have you ever played Cribbage? Mm-mm. It is unbelievably complicated, but really fun. I really I'm enjoyed out. it. You know, <laughs> I don't like to learn new games. No, I'm not I, learning a complicated game. Heck no. I think that's what's fun about it. It was nice to learn something new. It has all these very charming expressions in it. I truly believe that there are not a lot of things in humanity in which you can easily divide the population into two groups. But I believe this to be one of them. 
a person who likes to learn new games and a person who does not like to learn new games. I think you maybe can divide the entirety of the human population into those two groups. Okay, well, now I want to know where everybody I know falls because I love to learn a new game. I think no. it's very exciting. Mm-mm. I just glaze over as they start to explain. I'm like, no. And my husband loves new games. So I'm like, can we just play the games we know and love? Like, I love categories. He hates categories. He looks the same thing every time. I'm like, I know, right? Isn't that great? It's fine. It's fine. Well, we would love to hear how you are finding some times of rest wherever you get them in your week. We love hearing your thoughts about all the things we discuss, and we often share your messages in our weekly newsletter. So just a reminder to sign up for that if you haven't already by visiting PantsuPoliticsShow.com or clicking the link in our show notes. We'll be back in your ears on Friday. Until then, have the best week available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman, Molly Kors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley, The Pettins, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.